Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley, a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I talk to different creative people every week or whenever they post, whenever they go up. And this week I'm talking to someone who isn't in the creative arts necessarily, but uh, he is the internist of a lot of huge stars. Uh, his name is Dr. Gary Cohan, and he is one of Hollywood Reporter's top doctors. And he's also somebody that has been on the front lines of the AIDS crisis since the 80s and has a really interesting perspective on all of that stuff. So it was really amazing to talk to him, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. First, a little housekeeping. Um, follow me on Twitter. That would be cool. At Hensley Dennis. You can also check out the DennisAnyone.net webpage, and you can uh, subscribe to my newsletter there. You can donate a little to my virtual tip jar to help cover the expenses of the podcast, and I'd like to thank Bob Johnson for doing that. It helps a lot, especially since my storage just went up, because I can't let any of this good stuff go. I have to store it, right? Anyway, um, so yeah, and also like the Dennis Anyone Facebook page. That would be cool. Uh, I can't believe we're almost to the end of another year. It's crazy. Um, but I've really been enjoying doing this podcast. So thank you for listening and for your support. It means a lot to me. And now, without any further ado, here is Gary Cohen, MD. All right, I'm coming to you from the beautiful Hollywood Hills. I'm in the home of my guest today, Dr. Derry Cohen. Did I say Derry? I meant to say Gary. Well, you can call me anything you want. I've been called worse. <laughs> so, um, you were nice enough to do the podcast. You are a doctor here in Los Angeles. Recently named, what was the Hollywood Reporter thing? Um, in 2014 and 2015, they called me up unbeknownst to me, and I guess they must vote like the Oscars. They kind of survey all the big shots in Hollywood in front of and behind the camera. And they called me up and they said, oh, we, you were named the top uh, internist in all of Hollywood. And I'm like, really? <laughs> That's amazing. Did you get to do a speech? Was there a luncheon? Did no, a, pack, a certificate? No, none, none of the above. There was no. no red carpet. However, they did want to take a picture of me with one of my celeb clients. And I said, no. And they said, well, we have to. I said, well, then why don't you give it to number two? And they said... But, 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 I said, look, I said, what's the most precious commodity in this town? And it's discretion. I mean, yes. you know, it's privacy. And so that's what I provide my people. And I guess that's why these celebrities have found me because they know that I'm legit and that I'm never going to, I'm never going to open my mouth. And this year when they, they called me again and I was again shocked, I'm like, can't you find anybody else? And they, <laughs> well, it's just like, come on. Right. And, um, uh, you know, I, I actually, um, you know, just said, okay, you can take a picture of me with a good friend of mine who's a behind-the-scenes guy. So they took a picture of me with Dana Brunetti, who's a well-known producer. He does – he runs Kevin Spacey's production company. He does um, House of Cards. He did The Social Network, Fifty Shades of Grey. Right I know the name. For so sure. anyway, Dana's a great guy. He's a really dear friend. And then – they wanted quotes from some other people, and so I can say their names because they were in the article, but Matt Bomer's a good friend, Drew Barrymore uh, was on there, and she actually wanted she, she actually wanted their number. She got kind of annoyed with me that you know that, that I didn't ask her first. And um, you know these are all wonderful people. Awesome. Is it weird that you ended up with this celebrity clientele? Is that, does that make, was it, is it sort of like how did that happen, or was it something you always wanted? Absolutely never dreamed that 
a nice Jewish boy from a lower middle class family that grew up in a brick row house in Philadelphia would be in Hollywood with all these big names, never courted this kind of a practice, never was one of these docs that looks to amass a celeb practice. But I guess if you do legit medicine for enough years and you understand the business, which is kind of key, and I can talk about that a little bit, and some of the stressors these people are under, um, I think they see that you do a good job, and it's a kind of insular town. They talk amongst themselves, so be it agents, producers, directors, or people who are in front of the camera, um, and they somehow get your name and they show up and if you do a good job those keep coming right have you ever been starstruck in your have you ever thought like wow this is somebody i remember watching them when i was a kid or they're really handsome or they're really beautiful or they're you know what i mean i've seen stars where you're like they are some other breed of people well not all of them but sometimes Initially, yes. My, my practice, I'm, I'm, I, I work with a bunch of docs who are the, quote, Doc Hollywoods of town. Right. So it's like the front row of the Oscars every single day I go to work. So when I first started working in this particular practice, I would look down the hall and my brain would say, that looks like fill in the blank. But it, and it always was. So right. be it Diana Ross, Jack Nicholson, Warren Beatty, Annette Benning. I mean, I, you know, to go on. And these are not my patients, but these are people who just, you know, go through the office. And they're lovely. And they're just people. And I see them really just as people. And I'm more like a Jewish mother in terms of this. No, I'm not really starstruck. I'm more kind of proud of them. That they've managed to make it through, you know, the uh, the mill, you know, the grinder that is Hollywood and come out the other end intact. I love that. I love that. Now, do, you talked about the different kind of stressors. Now, do they ever talk to you about plastic surgery? Should I get it? What do you know about it? Because you're not that kind of doctor, but that's something that you talk about unique stressors. I, th- I feel for... I feel for people in that business, especially women, where it's like, do I do it? Do I don't? Do I do it? Do I don't? Well, yes and. The most important thing they come in with is that everybody, each of these people, if they're really a big name, and again, I guess I could use Drew as as an example because she she publicly came out and, you know, announced that I was her doctor. Um, You know, and I won't divulge anything overly personal that she hasn't divulged, but Drew Barrymore. Now, you know, child actress, emancipated at 14, difficult transition to adult actress, but then, you know, makes it really big. And then is right now has a family. I was at her wedding and has a family and has, you know, taken her celebrity as a springboard and now created several companies like a beauty company, uh, I guess cosmetics and eyeglasses. She has a wine company. She's got she's had a production company with her partner Nancy Javonin, who's Jimmy Fallon's wife. And essentially, the, she's done really well for herself. And she did that to transition and to be able to take care of her two kids, Olive and Frankie, to be there for her young children. And have the and give them the childhood she never had. Right. And it's very cool to see an evolved person who went through all kinds of craziness, and there was no guarantee that she would have survived all of this, but she did. And she's probably one of the most genuine, grateful, sweet people that I know. 
just in, in, in you know of any kind of people. She just that comes her. across. Yeah. I think I think she's kind of a fantastic example of. What you see on screen, or if you see her interviewed, that's true. There, yeah. there is no pretense, and there is no artificial Drew. That's her. Right. Now, you've also done some media stuff. You Radio shows, you, you get interviewed a lot for different things. You uh, spoke to Entertainment Tonight recently about the Charlie Sheen story. Yeah. Um, what was that like? Well, I, I've, starting early in my career, the reason that I have a lot of media experience is... Um, my career, my beginning of my medical career coincided with the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And I was initially slated to be an anesthesiologist, and I was accepted to, to an Ivy League anesthesia program, uh, residency program, but then my friends started to drop dead. I was in my early 20s, and there was this incredible amount of AIDS phobia and homophobia going around. And this is a true story, and this ties into Hollywood. I went to an art house movie and I saw the original movie called The Times of Harvey Milk, the documentary. Right. And I was so blown away by how this guy who was kind of a Wall Street tool could turn his life around to do something meaningful. And I thought, well, if I just step up to the plate where all my classmates were running away from AIDS and just took care of these people who were my people and everybody else was running away. The, uh, my senior professors and attending physicians were incredibly homophobic. They would say things at the cafeteria when nobody was listening, like these fags brought it on themselves and all kinds of crazy stuff. And I said, you know what? I'm going to just do this for a couple of years till they figure it out, and then I'll go be an anesthesiologist, and here we are 25 years later. And I'm, I, So what did that mean literally? You, you changed your emphasis to... I didn't do the anesthesia thing, so I went into an internal medicine residency and then did specialized training in HIV, and there wasn't any program for that, so I just did an elective where I hung out in at San Francisco General Hospital. I was training back east in Philly, and I went to San Francisco General, went to the outpatient and the inpatient wards with lots of dying people, but learned sort of how to do it, and, you know, and then went in with uh, these two docs in Philly who were, uh, at the time, serving the gay community, and they rose to the occasion, and, you know, I was their third. And this was back in Philly? This was back in Philly, and I did that... Uh, late 80s, early 90s, and then I was... So you would have been in San Francisco, mid-90s, or mid-80s? Late 80s, and then, you know, again, didn't move, it was an elective, and I was still in medical school in Philly at Penn, and then uh, was in, finished, got, was in private practice with these guys who were practicing uh, both internal medicine and HIV or AIDS medicine at the time, and then I was recruited to come out to the biggest and most you know, well-formed HIV practice in the country by a gent who has unfortunately left us, uh, left the planet, uh, Joel Weissman, who was one of the founders of AMFAR and was one of the original authors of the June 5th, 1981 report to the Centers for Disease Control that something screwy was going on with the immune systems of gay men. This was in 1981? Well, that's when we mark the start of the domestic AIDS epidemic, even though it started much, much, much earlier. Right. So June 5th, 81, there were a bunch of docs that co-authored this report of Kaposi's C sarcoma or pneumocystis pneumonia happening in otherwise healthy young gay men. And the doc who started this practice was one of the authors of that. We had met at a conference and he was 
a big shot, and I was in awe that he would even talk to me, and he asked me to come out west and part join his practice, so I did. And that was here in Los Angeles? Yeah, it was in 1992, and it was uh, with sort of with a group that was known for treating not only gay men, but people with HIV, and it was a brilliant setup. We had inpatient, outpatient, home care, when home care was a brand new thing, you know, uh, taking care of people in their homes with IVs and things, and, um, you know, had a, had my first starstruck episode, with even, even with that. I mean, actually, I t- I've told that story to the Hollywood Reporter. Who was it? Well, so I get here in August 92, and um, one of my partners who was taking care of a dying Anthony Perkins, and this is all in the public domain so I can talk about it, taking care of Tony Perkins from Psycho, um, he went on, the doc went on vacation and said, okay, I need you to cover Tony for me. Well, Tony was dying. And we, at the time, even though the tabloids had not exploded like they have now, even in 1992, and this was August of 92, we could not get him into the hospital without the tabloids. It was sort of a secret at the time, without the tabloids finding out. So we decided to do home care here in L.A. at his house in the Hollywood Hills. And so every day after work, I would go up to the house. And um, we had nurses, and I became very friendly with his wife, Barry Berenson. And there's a tragic story to that that will come in a minute. Um, And, uh, you know, when I first met him, you know, he was very ill but and thin, but, you know, still lucid. And, uh, you know, he motioned for me to sit on the edge of the bed. And I looked, and on his nightstand was this, it must have been custom designed for him, was this little lit sign that said Bates Motel. Oh my God. That must have been so surreal. It was just bizarre. And I'm thinking, what am I doing here? Well, then he passes away. And I had, I guess, cared for him for, you know, at least three, four weeks and been there every day and lots of phone calls, etc. Anyway, the wife, Barry Berenson and I got friendly. And um, so when it came to do the memorial at the house up on Woodrow Wilson, um, she, it was all of Hollywood royalty. I mean, Sophia Loren and Elizabeth Taylor, Mike Nichols, Sidney Poitier. I mean, people that I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing here? And Barry, the wife, had reserved a seat in the front row with the family for me. And I was so intimidated. And I said, listen, I know this is the hardest day of your life. I'm just going to stand in the back if that's okay. So I just stood in the back because I was, you know, pretty blown away by it all. Mike Nichols officiated along with Marianne Williamson. And the punchline to the story was, so as we're leaving, they had this kind of cobblestone driveway. And I'm walking out, and about 10 yards in front of me, I see this very thin, the back of a very thin elderly woman, beautifully dressed in a Chanel suit, and she was wobbling in heels on the cobblestones, and I thought she might fall. So I came up behind her, announced myself, and put my arm in her arm and said, let me help you. And it turned out to be Janet Lee. Oh, my God. So I, I'm escorting Janet Lee from the shower scene in Psycho out of Tony Perkins' funeral. I'm thinking, okay, this is this, the, this is the beginning of, you know, Bizarro World. Because you've always loved movies. And of course. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You weren't indifferent. You were like, no, I'm No. Yeah. And so, uh, again, as I began to see more of it, I just began to realize, you know, there are people who came from somewhere just like me. And I guess... Maybe I wasn't quite as starstruck as the next people. I was just, wow, you know, you've done well for yourself. 
That's great. That's really cool. You said you had a part two to the story about his wife. Oh, well, this is awful. Um, we, can, we can do awful on the podcast. It's okay. Well, we go there sometimes. On 9-11, she was in the second plane to hit the towers. Oh, shit. So Barry passed away on, uh, in one of the planes to hit the towers. She was coming back from Boston to L.A., and uh, she, she died. And I knew her sons, Elvis and Osgood, and uh, it was just tragic. You know, and she's such, she was probably one of the best people I know. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. So that was so that was that. So again, there was a lot of death, but there was some interesting stuff. And she was a great wife, and they had you know two great sons, um, and you know it was just a really interesting introduction to Hollywood. Now you also consulted for and the band played on when they made that TV. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, what was your uh, role in that? What, well, what did you they, do? they, I got a call out of the blue again. Um, somebody must have mentioned my name that I knew um, all the medical aspects of HIV/AIDS, and so I got a call from the director Roger Spottiswood, and he said, "Would you, you know, be our medical consultant on this film?" And I said, okay, what does that mean? And he said, well, you know, look at the script and if there's any inconsistencies, et cetera. So there was Sir Ian McKellen, B.D. Wong, Lily Tomlin, Matthew Modine. Was Richard uh, Gere in that movie? No, no Richard okay. Gere was not in that one. Okay. And I was on set. And um, were there, Do you remember a moment where you said, you know what, this isn't really accurate. It should be this or that. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. Did you have to weigh in a lot? Actually, I mean, I guess I, guess I was a bit of an upstart. Um, I actually had a bit of a uh, tete-a-tete, shall we say, with the director. Sir Ian McKellen's character in, in the band played on. As he's dying, he gets dementia. So the script called for him to speak gibberish, just not like words that didn't make any sense at all. Not like real words, but like, you know, as he was speaking in tongues. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. If you're demented, somebody will ask you, how are you, Dennis? And Dennis will reply, the pancakes are cold. Story of my life. <laughs> Mine too, and we can get into that later. But anyway, so I said that 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 not accurate. That that's not how it would happen. And they thought it would make for you know a much better. It'd uh, be more theatrical. It would be yeah, more you know, opportunity on the screen. And yeah. I said, yeah, but I said, do you really want to be true to Emmy all clip. of this? That's his Emmy clip. You're taking away his Emmy clip. Oh, you know. God. Well, anyway, you know, Serian was a great guy, and I, I kind of hooked him up to his fake IV, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, right. that was, you know, that was it. The rest of did it they, was... Did they listen to you? And did they... No. They completely ignored me, and they, he spoke gibberish. But... I escorted, so a publicist who I knew asked me, Randy Schiltz, who wrote the book, was, right. di- was dying. And that was around the time of the premiere. And so the, his publicist said, Randy's up in San Francisco. He's on oxygen, but he wants to go to the premiere. Could you escort him because you're a doctor if anything goes wrong to the premiere? So I escorted Randy Schiltz to the premiere of his own movie. Wow. And um, What was know, he like as a person? He was ill. He was, I, I don't, you know what, honestly, I really don't know. I'm not probably the best to uh, comment on it, but I read his book. I read And the Band Played On. What a brilliant page turner of a, of a detective story. Right. So, you know, I just admired his, his incredible talent there. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that somebody put it on the screen, you know, for, for future generations who, uh, you know, at least right now, really don't remember the epidemic like we do. Yeah. Now, as somebody who isn't in the medicine field, 
but who follows AIDS and is, you know, is deals with all that. There's certain news stories that break or something that happens where you're like, oh, maybe we're turning a corner. What are the moments from your point of view where you, some news or something that you noticed where you were, you felt encouraged that felt like the turning, the turning points or something um, was happening? Well, it's pretty much what, what most of the public may or, you know, or could know it. I remember, because I was in medical school, when Rock Hudson, who looked obviously like he was dying, when he um, announced that he, had, he was forced to announce that he had AIDS with Liz Taylor by his side. And that was the first time that we put the face of a public person to AIDS. And the Reagan administration was, you know, really had, you know, was horrific, was you know, if you look at, if you listen to the tapes and the history, they basically um, were just allowing gay men to die, and they didn't do anything. And if this was happening, if this kind of thing was happening, by that point, I think five thousand Americans had died. Um, you know, so you know, talk about nine eleven and three thousand Americans die, and the whole country changes. Um, they just ignored, they they ignored it because it was happening to. Gay men who gay men who were you know who were who were marginalized and deviants and um, uh, they just they they literally left and it wasn't until I think 1987 it started in 81 so maybe six years after the epidemic that Ronald Reagan first said the word AIDS and I will absolutely never have any respect for that man. Wow, I mean that that was that 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 was horrible. These are his own citizens, public health crisis, and he does nothing. Right. And actually mocks the people who have the disease. What was it like when protease inhibitors started coming in for you day to day? Because I remember I had a friend that was the first person that I knew that was on it. And he and his partner were both doing it. But he was responding better than his partner. So it was all of that stuff. And I can't imagine day to day, like, seeing it sort of starting to work. Is it really working? Is it too good to be true? What's going, you know, what's it the like? The epidemic did a 180 overnight. It really felt like overnight to you. It was. It was. We. It almost. It almost. Just interestingly, from a business standpoint, it almost bankrupted our practice because we had built up such a great operation to treat people who were incredibly ill. So we had an entire floor, sixty beds at a hospital. We had the largest home infusion company in Southern California. Again, not just to generate money, but this the, was there was a need to have a structure to take care of yes. a lot of very sick. Dying people who were having just, you know, being eaten alive by opportunistic infections. And then we get protease inhibitors and it was, it took the viral load down to nothing. The immune systems recovered and suddenly hospital um, cleared out. Hospices cleared out. It took a couple of years, but I mean, you know, it just, everybody got better all at once. Now, there were some people who, you're right, did not respond, and that was more because they may have become resistant to some of the other medicines. What we, what we learned was you needed, it was like chemotherapy, you needed three medicines, not one, not two, you needed a triple, what we called the cocktail, but three medicines to, to effectively um, stall the HIV virus. Well, and for the record, my friends that I knew, the, the, the partner eventually found the right thing and did great, so, but it was just that initial time. So it literally felt like overnight to you. It, it really did. How did you guys adjust from a business point of view? We almost went bankrupt. I didn't take a salary for two years, and I based and um, that must be so weird to have such good news have such uh, different fallout. It was it was so schizophrenic because you were so happy because these were my peers and friends and patients. And then professionally, we were having meetings like saying we're going to all lose our houses 
because we were personally guaranteed on all the loans for whatever, and we had built these things up. Well, people can get better quickly, but you can't, you know, change leases and a business and all the things right. you've got and downsize that quickly. So if anybody ever writes the story of that particular medical practice, it's a fascinating story how it came, you know, the rise and fall of something, you know, of a medical practice that was devoted to HIV and was the best of what they did. Um, and, you know, flash forward to 2015, which is when we're recording this, um, that practice sort of really, you know, in name it exists, but there's only a couple of dots. We had, I think at the peak, we had, you know, 120, 150 employees and we had uh, five offices and, you know, at least 20 docs. And now it's down to one of the original docs and three, um, you know, young docs that seem to kind of rotate through. That must have been so schizophrenic, like you said, having... Seeing your patients do better, but having to let people go, having to, did you, you people lost their jobs, yeah, right? Yeah, lots of people lost their jobs, and again, I, again, I almost, I had, you know, uh, purchased a house, I was up in Laurel Canyon at a little small canyon house, and again, I came home and I told my partner, I said, you know, likely we're going to lose the house, and he was great, he said, I don't care, he said, you know, as long as you and me can be together and we can have the dogs, you know, he said, I'll live out of a cardboard box. So that's why we were together for so long. That's sweet. That's so, awesome. so yeah. So um, it, it really did change overnight. And and the interesting thing about the most recent Charlie Sheen revelation is not really Charlie Sheen. It's the fact that the last time that a big celebrity came out and it it, it broke through the news cycle to become front page news was Greg Louganis coming out in 1995, 20 years prior, when it was a totally different disease. Right, and I remember a, Magic Johnson as well, and he was even before then, right? Magic 90, oh, so Rock Hudson 85, Magic Johnson 91, Louganis in uh, 95, and then pretty much nothing. Right. And then 20 years, total progress, one pill once a day, preventive medications we have now. Basically, people who get HIV today, God forbid, um, they will live a normal lifespan, absolutely normal lifespan to the point, and Dennis, I'm sure you don't know what I'm about to say because it just happened, but newsflash. We're making, we're breaking news here? We are breaking news. I love this. Prudential Life Insurance Company is going to start writing life insurance policies again on men with HIV whose viral load is controlled. Life insurance for HIV positive And they patients. weren't doing that before. They'd stopped. Well, you couldn't get life insurance. Yeah. Come on, you can barely get life well, insurance. Well, I just remember, I, I had never really explored the life insurance world, but I do remember early on that people that had policies, like that was a whole thing. But I didn't know, I, I guess I just never knew about life insurance. So you, I'm HIV negative, but I, right. have, you know, I have my father's high blood pressure and cholesterol. Right. And when I went to buy you know, a term life insurance policy a number of years ago and they did underwriting... You know, they made a giant fuss about how I was, you know, a high-risk person, you know, when I'm probably one of the healthiest people around. And so um, for them to begin writing says so much about how things have changed. That's incredible. Yeah. That's a big deal. And I – because I feel like with people like you speaking out with the Charlie Sheen thing, it's a chance for the mass public to kind of get up to date on it because a lot of people may not – may not – Keep up, or, or well, think it has nothing to do with them, or you know maybe they're married and living in another, you know. There's sev- life. There, there were just several factors. There hadn't been a celebrity. People got better, so there's nothing like 
watching dying people to be, you know, for a story to be newsworthy and people stop dying. And um, so we quietly made all these advances in the field in my microcosm of, you know, of internal medicine and infectious disease. Yeah, these things were seismic shifts. But for the rest of the world, it just was like, well, we don't see these guys dying. But people still think that HIV equals AIDS, which it doesn't. AIDS is when your immune system is totally trashed and gone and you're going to be subject to opportunistic infections. HIV just means you harbor the virus in your system, but we can suppress it to extraordinarily low levels, which they use the word undetectable, which doesn't mean it's not there. It just means it's, you know, it's below our ability to, to see it in the blood. And it also means that um, a person will not progress to AIDS. Now, as a doctor, you have your patients, you have your practice, but you also have to keep up with research and what's going on. How how do you do that? Do you read? Do you go to conferences? Do you how does how do you stay up to date, especially on something where there's always new research? Well, all, all of the above. I go to conferences. I read constantly. Um, the internet's been great because I have you know very specified news feeds, both on my general medicine stuff, but especially HIV. I'm considered, uh, and I have been considered, what they call in the, biz, in the medical business a KOL, a key opinion leader about HIV, and I teach other doctors how to do this. And so I lectured for many, many years about how to do this. And um, there is a certifying organization, the American Academy of HIV Medicine, that every two years I have to take their board exam. So, you know, I took it again for the 15th time uh, this last August and passed it. But again, I am certified as an HIV specialist in addition to being a board certified internal medicine physician. And so, um, yeah, I got a couple of interesting specialties. And you have to you have to work to keep up and put in. Yeah, um, and it's right now it's not changing as fast as things used to change. But again, great advances. So you know, we went from take people taking handfuls, twenty pills a day, now to a single pill once a day that right. has no side effects. Right. So. It's good. Now we also, you know, we also have a pill to prevent HIV. We have a pill if somebody was exposed to HIV, where you take the for the pill for thirty days and you'll never get HIV if we catch it within the first forty-eight to seventy-two hours of exposure. So it's great stuff. It's just that the public awareness needs to catch up. Yeah, and I think one good thing that could come out of the Charlie Sheen thing is that. People are talking about it again in a mass way, or they were. Well, when, when I was contacted by multiple news outlets, and I'm very dear friends with the executive producer of Entertainment Tonight and another sister show done at the same studio called The Insider. and um, Oh, I know The Insider. <laughs> and so they said, and it, so a lot of news outlets had contacted me, but because I was good friends... Uh, with them, and because this, because it was Charlie, and he's tabloid fodder, and so it's this. This one was interesting because it fell not into the really the newsy cycle; it fell more uh, entertainment. But anyway, um, they asked to interview me, but I had a rule. I just said to them, "Happy to talk about it." Um, yes, I did advise Charlie's doc. I was not his doc, but I did give some behind the scenes. I knew I, I, I've known for four years about this, um, you know, very quietly, and um, was advising his doc when I was asked. And um, but I said I will not talk about Charlie's drug use or sexual activities. That's irrelevant. What I'd like to do is use this. As a platform, even using Charlie, but as a platform to say what's new, 
And yeah, this is where we're at now. Where are we now? And, you know, is it still a threat? Who, how many people have it? And, you know, so I did. I got to educate. And then, you know, they were kind enough to publish the transcript, you know, uh, you know on, online. And it turned out pretty well. I read it online. I was like, wow, you're, it, was, it just felt very articulate, very, like, thought through. And I was impressed. Like, I, I know, and I was like one take coming from I know. coming from me. I don't know where that comes from. You know? No, you've got you've got a little bit. Don't you have a little bit of the? I like to the performing thing a little bit. Well, a little, not acting, but a, you know what I'm saying. A little bit, but with my friends, I kind of you know I'm just Gary, right? And um, so if, you know, slightly funny story, my. Former partner, um, you know, we were together 14 years, and you know, he just knew me as his, you know, lunkhead of a husband, and so. Uh, but occasionally, I would get a call from the emergency room at night, and they would say so and so's here, and I would lapse into doctor speak, you know, using big words and medical terms and whatever. And when I would hang up the phone, he would look at me in amazement that I knew all these big words and that I talked. And he actually said to me, "That is so hot." <laughs> it is hot when you start. You... <laughs> so I just laughed. Yeah. I said, you know, because he, he, I don't think he ever realized, you know, what I do for a living is kind of technical. I dated a doctor for a little while, not very long, but I remember when he would be on call and he would have to talk on the phone and he was so kind to his patients and so patient and the tone he took. And I was, it just made me like go, oh, what a great man. Anyway. Well, I mean, you know, I, I've learned, I'm 55 right now, and I kind of, after all these years, I've learned that it was, a, even though I didn't know that it was going to be a great career choice when I made the decision in my teens or 20s to do, become a doctor, but I get paid to do good deeds all day long. What a nice career. So, and a meaningful stuff and get back to humanity. And so anyway, it feels good. It really does. I mean, and it's something that has staying power. And I compare that sometimes to my people in finance or even in the entertainment world where, you know, people do have existential crises about what are they giving back? What's their legacy, et cetera. I have no um, idea what you're talking about. No, <laughs> I, I, I totally get it. No. So, and you, you know, there's no mystery to, am I doing something good? Am I helping somebody? Am I contributing? Well, some days there are, some some days there are, you know, but, but in general, um, most of what I do is be father, mother, hand holder, psychiatrist, and, you know, um, you know, and the very least of which is, you know, throw prescriptions at people. Um, the most important is to do what you just mentioned with your friend being kind and empathetic to people because that's what they need. Yeah, because people are freaked out. Yeah, people call and they, look, I, I have sitting on the front of my desk, literally the first thing somebody, when they walk into my office and they're sitting in my, in my private office, they see it's this little frame thing that I got from that, that snarky website, e, some e-cards, and it says, congratulations on Googling yourself to a misdiagnosis of terminal cancer. Every one of my patients, very bright, they'll have, you know, they'll come in and they'll say, Gary, and they usually whisper. I'll go, what? And they say, I have cancer. I said, okay, what kind of cancer do you think you have? Toe cancer. And I'm like, why do you think you have toe cancer? And they show me this black toenail. And I said, that's toenail fungus. And they say, how do you know? I said, well, 30 years of doing this, you know. But people are freaked out by things that happen to their body because, not because they're dumb, 
but they we've democratized medical information. So you can go online and type stuff in and absolutely drive yourself out of your mind and be sure that you have something that is, you know, about to kill you. You could always find one article that that nails what you think you might have and oh my god yes 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 so people actually get it all wrong they come in and they say um oh you're gonna be so mad at me because i looked this up i said no not mad at all i'm glad that you're taking responsibility for your own health you got your diagnosis wrong but that's my job right so there you go that's cool is there something about your personality that made you suited for what you ended up doing especially in relationship to the aids crisis why were you that guy? Um, well, several reasons. Some is personal. Um, I was just coming out as a gay man. I had dated women for almost a decade. And so I was just coming out as a gay man. And so this kind of blended um, you know, my coming out with a professional thing, even though it was a pretty, pretty horrific ride. But you know, I jumped into the deep end of the pool. And um, uh, But I think you have to be kind of a strong person and resilient, but you also have to have not what doctors are chosen for, which is IQ, you know, absolutely, you know, general intelligence, um, but you have to have EQ, you have to have emotional intelligence to do this. So you have to be able to empathize and, and understand, and especially in the early years when people were dying, you know, I was a kid taking care of dying people and dying people my own age. And so how do you make sense of that? And I worked hard at it and I got hopefully better at it as time went on, but there was no roadmap, but I do have a lot of empathy. So there are a lot of people who are a lot smarter than me in terms of sheer computing power of their brains, but I do have a nice combination of knowing enough medicine to, you know, so that I won't get in too much trouble and the, you know, emotional intelligence where I understand people. People felt safe with you. Yeah. And that's as safe as you could feel in, in a horrific situation like that. My rule to my patients is always this. Um, uh, even if I didn't fix anything, they are to always, they must feel better leaving my office than when they came in. So when they come in, they have to feel listened to, loved, respected, um, not scared, the fact that they've got a partner in this, just always feel better that, that there's somebody on their team and that it's not as scary and somebody's going to explain it for them and take care of them. And hopefully that's what, you know, that's, that's what happens most of the time. I got a little... Anyway, what is what is it do to how did you manage it at the beginning? How did you cope with all that you had to see and deal with? Is there a PTSD thing that happens? Is there what does it do to somebody? Prozac and um, a lot of psychotherapy, partly. And what's never been reported is what happened to because I guess I'm now the youngest even though I'm 55 now the youngest of the original docs treating HIV because many of them are either dead retired committed suicide dropped out because it was horrible it was horrific and you talk about guys coming back from a tour in Iraq watching you know their friends being blown up well I spent 15 years watching my friends sink into quicksand and being eaten alive by opportunistic infections so most of us have a fair bit of PTSD from those years and it's how you deal with it that you know will determine whether or not you can go on and you know and 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 have a uh, 
functional career, and right. I decided that uh, you know, and I worked hard through it, and I and I made sure that I kept my, my own brain intact. And that well, whenever I see you or I, I interact with you, you're always upbeat, you're positive, you're friendly, you're you know what I mean. You you you. Um... That's all psychotropic drugs. It's all it's that that's, that, 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 that's all no. How does the PTSD express itself? Physical stuff or I dreams? Think, weird? No, there was a lot of actually. There, Mostly through some anxiety or insomnia, um, you know, for a while there, there was some depressive stuff, um, but I decided I'm just not going to let it get me, um, and so I just took care of myself. Now, some of this stuff was in my family, in my genetics, but um, I just made sure that, you know, that I took care of myself first, and and, and there's an old saying that one of my residents used to say to me during... um, uh, when, when you were in the hospital and somebody had a cardiac arrest and they called a code blue and they said, when you arrive at a code blue, the first person's pulse to take is your own. Oh, that's interesting. Which is you got to keep your stuff together and you got to calm down, think logically and take care of yourself so that you can take care of the patient. I would be worthless to my patients if I was a train wreck emotionally, and so I work hard to take care of myself. So I, I do. I practice what I pe- preach. I exercise every day, um, and you know, and I go see my therapist, and I just, you know, just try to do, you know, live a pretty clean life. But um, I know other people who, again, through no fault of their own. But just have a very hard time with this. I can imagine, for sure. Talk to me about PrEP. PrEP. Well, PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis, which just means that we have... It's been out for about three years, but really has gained traction in the last year or so. Essentially, what we found found out is that if we took... It's, a, it's an older HIV medicine that we were using to treat HIV, but if people would take this pill every single day, even if they had um, a sexual indiscretion, didn't use a condom, condom broke, that almost zero people would turn HIV positive. So it prevented HIV. Combine that with if, if the guys who are already HIV positive are successfully treated, and it's the chance of a person becoming HIV positive, if they're on pre-exposure prophylaxis and the person that they're being intimate with um, has a controlled viral load is mathematically zero. Wow. Zero. And that's what people need to understand. So when you go back to Charlie Sheen and all these people blackmailing him and suing him, they're not going to prevail because, you know, unless somebody turns up positive and they can prove it was Charlie, I mean, I'm not saying that he was a good guy in terms of how he conducted himself or who he told or who he didn't. But, the, you know, if I happen to know that his HIV was controlled from the moment he was diagnosed, he was, you know, almost impossible to transmit. What are the, what are the things that go with the, the, the growing usage of PrEP? That, that maybe other people people don't know about other STDs or other attitudes or are there things that are about that that are surprising? I know people that have worked on studies that, well, that find it really interesting. The drug is pretty non-toxic. It's a drug made by a company called Gilead named Truvada. And we'll, we're going to find other drugs. Truvada is just our first shot over the bow with this PrEP stuff. But 
the thing that people are not realizing and I'm seeing in the trenches and now there's a lot of pushback within the uh, advocacy community about is I'm seeing a massive, and the Center for Disease Control just published this, a massive rise in sexually transmitted infections like gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, herpes, uh, human papillomavirus, which is the wart virus, hepatitis C. I'm just seeing, because people are treating PrEP like a virtual condom, I specifically tell my patients that is not the case. It is not a virtual condom, and you can get all these other things if you don't use other protection methods. It's great at preventing HIV, and I believe it should be promoted, and I believe that uh, people at risk should be on it. But people also need to understand the risk they're taking with other sexually transmitted infections. Now, there are some people out there who are very glib about all these sexually transmitted infections and say, well... We managed it in the 70s. We, we can just manage it. We are now down, because of drug resistance, to one injectable medicine to treat gonorrhea. It's our last medicine. You used to have more. We used to have pills. We used to have lots of stuff. One medicine. Because, because the virus has mutated. Into well, gonorrhea is a bacteria, but yeah, gonor you know, because right. it's gotten resistant. Um, hepatitis C. Well, right. that's a $100,000 proposition to treat. Holy smokes. Yeah. So uh, people do need to know. And look, everybody, in my opinion, um, can take whatever risk they want. If you want to, you know, drive your car on a racetrack fast or jump out of an airplane with a, hopefully with a parachute or, you know, do crazy stuff, go right ahead. But you have to understand. And I also think that it's not just you. It's the community at large that is, you know, spreading it amongst them, themselves. And I don't think that these are the last sexually transmitted infections we're ever going to see. Remember, who knew about HIV back when people were beginning to be infected in large numbers in the 1970s? Because it was only in 1981 that we kind of saw the final manifestations of it. But people had to be being infected in possibly the 60s and the 70s. Right. And if you really want to know, the virus goes back to the late 1800s in Western Africa. But that's a whole other story. Wow. So the virus, right. it's an old virus. And um, so it's not gay men. It had nothing to do with any of that. It just happened to coincide with the gay sexual revolution and gay liberation, as it was called at the time. And then you introduced a fatal virus while people were enjoying their sexual freedom. And it was a disaster. Yeah, it was a perfect storm. Yeah. Are there side effects to PrEP? You know, there potentially could be. I just haven't seen them. So we talk about the potential for kidney side effects or bone side effects or other things. I've really never seen So you it. haven't had a patient come in and say, this isn't doing this to me? Or the answer is, yeah. Of course, if you treat enough patients, people will say, this yeah. is making me nauseated or giving me sure. diarrhea. However, have I seen it do more heinous things? No, it's a pretty clean drug. That's good. So, yeah, it is good. And we're going to come up with other things. We're even going to come up with something where we can give people an injection every month or maybe every three months, and that'll protect them. What, what is next? Is that the next thing? What's the thing that you think will be the big breaking thing? It, it just it, It's incremental progress. So I think we've gotten down to one pill once a day and very non-toxic so to completely control the virus and... You know, whoever thought. We never even knew if we could control the virus. So anyway, uh, we've gotten that cleaned up and down packaged into one pill. And the next thing I think that will come along will be longer-acting treatments given by injection. 
they're working on all kinds of other therapies, gene therapies, but the problem with HIV that makes it different is it's what's called a retrovirus. It weaves itself into your own DNA, your own genes. And so to get it out is kind of hard. So there are some novel ideas about how to do that. It's just that there's nothing ready for prime time. Has being an, an, a doctor that's specialized in this had any effect on dating for you? When you date somebody and they find out what you do, they have a million questions. Or Is it, is it a thing or not a thing? No, from the other person's perspective. They, you know, they may ask me if I'm HIV positive, and I'm not HIV positive. It was more on my end, and it had to do with the PTSD. For a long time, and not out of discrimination, I guess, you know, I'm the biggest advocate out there. I have a whole drawer full still of my Act Up t-shirts when I did my die-ins in the 80s. You did um, it. I want to know about that, but we'll come back to that. Um, it was hard for me to, at the time, to date a person who was HIV positive and bring it home to after I would be seeing this all day, it was very hard, and that was and that I learned through therapy was a lot of my, you know, just just you know, post traumatic stress makes sense. Um, but flash forward, um, now that we can treat HIV and um, I can protect myself in other ways, um, that's gone away. I'm okay. That's good. Yeah. Good well, for you. Yeah, it opens up lots of, you know, you know, right. you know, lots lots of new options. There you go. Um, what about doing a diet? Tell me about that. You were with Act Up and Well, I was in Philadelphia and we were, you know, in the gay community, AIDS community, we were being ignored and, you know, so everybody knows about Larry Kramer and Act Up and I was charter member. I was young and I was very angry. How many diets do you think you went to? I don't know. I was arrested twice, but they never really recorded it. But did you, know, did you do a mugshot in the whole thing? No, okay. no. They just rounded us up and let right. us go. But um, you know, we laid in front of you know in the middle of Broad Street. And do you try to pick hall. a good position because you know you're going to be there a while? Is there a strategy to how you do a die-in? Is my point. Um, yeah, they told us about how to make ourselves limp so we'd be hard to pick up. You know, so that they would have trouble dragging us out of there. So, um, so you would just relax everything and not help them, not contract your stuff yeah, at all. Yeah, I mean, you know, we were just dead weight and tried not to make it easy for anybody because we wanted to, you know, get people's attention. Hey, you know, we're here, we're people, and, you know, pay some attention and some respect. Yeah, and you fired up. And was, I there, was, was there a bonding that happened with the people that were doing that? Absolutely. With each other? Absolutely. And there was a bonding within the gay community. We all got together. We it's all like going a, through a war together. Absolutely. We all had a common purpose and, um, you know, fundraisers all the time. Unfortunately, I, my, most of my weekends were consumed with going to memorials. Talk about the women that were around. Because sometimes I feel like if it, it had been the reverse, that if it affected women and not men the way AIDS has, I don't know... I don't know if we would have stepped up in the way that some of the women have. But yeah, that that's, that's hard to speculate, thing. but all I can tell you is the women that I worked with, some of whom were gay, some of whom were not, um, and my mother was one of them who oh stepped up. Um, she was a pretty amazing lady. Um, were incredible. Were absolutely incredible. I mean, as were more committed than some of the guys. And, you know, the guys were still... Most of us were young, and they were out, and they were doing this, but, you know, on weekends they were running around to dance clubs and dating, and right. a lot of the women were much more mature. And yeah. But they were the women around were heroes, absolute amazing people. I love that. 
All right, you write a blog called Dr. Gary's Medical Soapbox. How do people find it? DrGary'sMedicalSoapbox.com? Um, yeah, Dr. Gary Cohan's Medical Soapbox. It's on Facebook. Right, so that's why I always see it, but I wouldn't know how to tell somebody to find yeah, it. Yeah, so basically, if you just, if you, even if you just typed in the words Medical Soapbox, I don't think anybody has ever you know, put those two words together. You know, Soapbox, for those who are younger, you know, uh, people would stand on uh, a wooden crate that would, used to carry soap, and that's where they would spout out you know, their things in the public square and so this was my platform to um, disseminate just general medical information not specific to HIV I did a radio show I was the host of a call-in radio show general medical call-in radio show two hours every Sunday on KABC from like 2007 to 2011 and answered lots of different questions and I've done a lot of writing and I write for the Huffington Post more political stuff sometimes anyway the medical soapbox I just thought to myself after those things were uh, concluded, I said I shouldn't not get good information out to people and I know how to parse the information about what would be interesting to most people because things that are interesting to a doctor are not things that are going to be interesting to the general public. It's very gee whiz when you know, some molecule is discovered, but there's no way to explain how right. important that is to somebody else. But, you know, um, there are lots of other things that are important to people. So this is holiday season. So telling them, you know, what, you know, are dangers around the holiday season. What are some of the dangers around the holiday season? Well, f fires from open candles and, uh, you know, people drinking and driving and, or in California getting stoned and driving. And, and Colorado and maybe some other states, um, uh, your animals eating various plants. And actually one of the myths is that uh, poinsettias are toxic to, are severely toxic to dogs. That's not true. Um, you know, so it's only very mildly toxic. The stuff that's really heinous for dogs and possibly cats um, are mistletoe and holly, which contain some pretty nasty stuff in them. But uh, poinsettia is people shouldn't worry too much about. You're okay with them. I love when your blog comes up in my feed because it's always some little nugget that's like, oh, that's interesting, and I can apply it to my life. You wrote recently about coffee. Yeah, how about you know about coffee may actually extend people's lives, and sometimes we're we figure it. We but I will see one of those uh, stories. We'll, we will know the mechanism of why it happens or why it doesn't, but if it's legit and it comes from a source that is based on a clinical study where they've done something, that's something I'll post. There's a lot of noise out on the internet of stuff that just is completely untrue. With all the information that's out there, what's like the best thing about medicine right now and the worst thing in terms of like what people believe or misconceptions or... Well, without getting into, you know, people's access to care, which is shameful in the United States, we should have a national health system. And when, you know, if, the, if, if our politicians, you know, were not so heavily polarized, they would have taken Medicare, which is a government health system that everybody seems to love, and just extended it for the entire country. And boom, immediately we have a national health system. But they didn't. And so... What they call Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, is sort of this Frankenstein, you know, sewed together bunch of stuff. It's better than nothing. Um, it has nothing to do with our president. It just has to do with what politicians were willing to do and whose pocket they were in. It's, various it benefited me lobbies. a lot. It Absolutely. kind of saved my ass the last couple of years. No argument. And I think we're moving toward 
what every other developed country has, which is the following. It's a, we'll end up with a single-payer system for most people, and then those people who want, you know, sort of to have a little easier access and less clinic-style care, they can purchase individual policies and, you know, be able to see private doctors. But And that happens in every other developed country. Right. So hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll come to our senses and get there. But you asked... Um, if you ask me, the best thing that's happened to medicine in the last couple hundred years is vaccines okay. to prevent fatal diseases and measles, polio, you know, just you know, all kinds of things that used to kill people and people have short memories. Um, you know, and it wasn't all that long ago. Uh, and, you know, and the anti-vax crowd is just not just off the rocker, but... Um, horrifically irresponsible and they're responsible for a lot of deaths. And so the anti-vaccine crowd um, is slowly being crushed by not only data, but by the fact that they've caused several outbreaks and deaths. And so very uh, optimistically, the California state legislature recently passed a bill saying you can't have what we call a personal exemption so that your kid doesn't have to get a vaccination. Right. They have to have a medical, a real medical reason why it would be dangerous. And that's good. And so I think it's the tide's beginning to turn on these anti-vaccine crowd, you know, and you get these, you know, really idiot celebrity mouthpieces like Jenny McCarthy, who I just can't say enough negative things about. And, you know, the antidote for her is, is duct tape. <laughs> um, she just—it's just awful. And right. there's other people. I mean, why would I be listening to a washed-up celebrity or semi-celebrity? So anyway, but she has her adherence. Um, you know, people can go right ahead and do that. But um, I would not allow my kid to attend a school where other children are not vaccinated because there's something called a herd immunity, where you have to have a pretty high percentage, like 95% of people have to be immunized for the rest of the crowd to be fully protected. And if all these kids are not being vaccinated because they have these affluent parents who are very entitled and say, well, I'm not going to vaccinate my kid because of some non-existent risk, um, you put everybody at risk. Right. And that we owe that to each other as a society, as a personal responsibility. What about vitamins? You see vitamins for everything and this and that and supplements and all that stuff. Yeah, that's the biggest scam perpetrated on the public in years. Vitamins, unless you have a specific deficiency of, say, vitamin D or vitamin B12 um, in a condition called pernicious anemia, vitamins are worthless. The um, most respected journal in medicine, I think at the end of 2012 or 13, came out with the strongest editorial I've ever seen where they did what's called a meta-analysis, looked at every study on vitamins and found out that not only do they do nothing to, to slow down aging, to prevent cancer, heart disease, dementia, or anything else, but some of them are cancer promoters, some of them are heart disease promoters. It's absolutely you know, crazy what people do. So even like a multivitamin, you know, whatever. It's, it's just worthless. I was brought up on Flintstones chewables. Right. And the deal is we weren't living in a third world country where I might have micronutrient deficiencies. You know, we had normal American diet, which for me consisted of, you know, Captain Crunch and chocolate milk. Yum. Gosh, I remember those. <laughs> I still have, I have some Captain Crunch at home right now. Um, what about flu shots? Flu I shots need, are the best thing ever. I people, need to get one. I haven't gotten mine yet. Well, you know, a bunch of myths about flu shots. First of all, people say, well, 
that gives you the flu. Well, that shows incredible ignorance because it's a dead piece of protein. So the only way you can get a disease from a shot is if I give you the live virus, which this is not. Right. Second, it protects you against multiple strains of flu. Um, people say, well, I don't need it. Well, if influenza isn't a cold, people use the term flu very loosely. Influenza is a super severe upper respiratory infection where you will get a fever of 100, an adult, a fever of 103, feel like you've been run over by a truck, um, be out of work for four to six weeks, and a lot of times end up with pneumonia in the hospital, and it kills young people and old people. And my theory about this, probably my quacky theory about this, because I've taken flu shots for decades now, is the following. People forget that in 1918, there was what was called the Spanish flu or the great flu pandemic that killed at least 50 million people or a great chunk of the world's population. It coincided with World War I, which made it spread more easily. And um, it was a particularly vicious form of influenza flu. Every scientist is predicting, just like they're predicting that it's not if, it's when the big earthquake is going to come to California. Well, it's not if, it's when that next horrible pandemic flu is going to come along. And many of us believe that if we have a library of protection against different flu strains because we've gotten our flu shots over the years, we have this arsenal of antibodies against different flu strains, maybe, and again, it's a speculation, we'll have cross-protection when the really nasty flu shows up. So that's just a thought. But in general, there is just no reason to get it, uh, get the flu. And again, it can kill you. Yeah. So, uh, and if anybody was in my office, you know, wear a little white coat and hang out with me during flu season, you'll get a flu shot next year if you haven't, because you'll see what a real flu patient looks like, and it ain't a cold. It's horrible. Yeah, yeah. wow. All right. When you are working... Oh, you took some questions from the observation deck. Let's do that, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, what's your favorite bad movie? Um, Valley of the Dolls. What do you love about it? Um... That it's just, you know, Hollywood hyperbole on steroids that it, that it you know, Neely O'Hara says in that, you know, you know, she survived pills, booze in the funny farm. It has a lot of, you know, great stuff, but it really talks about the price of fame and, you know, how um, it can destroy people. And I've watched that happen in real life, but it's very campy and it's very funny. And so it's got some of the best lines out there. Yeah. So, you know, um, you know the, the great Helen Lawson line when she's fighting with Neely O'Hara, um, you, know, you know, when they're in the bathroom and, you know, and, 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 and she she says to Neely the, Neely the old actress says to Neely O'Hara, you know, they they drummed you out of Hollywood, so you come crawling back to Broadway. Well, Broadway doesn't go for booze and dope. Now, why I remember that line? I remember I it too because it's delicious. It's a great line, but yeah. I'm just saying why my brain is littered with this. I don't remember what I ate for breakfast this morning, but I remember that line. Yeah, it's amazing. All right, describe your most unfortunate haircut. Oh. That's just so embarrassing. You know, <laughs> well, I have really short hair that, that actually the genesis of that was when I was in my early medical training and I was in the on-call rooms and I sort of have 
my hair's naturally curly, so I had what some people refer to as a Jufro. Um, Which can be hot. I'm a fan. Yeah, well, anyway, uh, you know, you'd be on the on-call room trying to grab an hour or two of sleep when you're on call in the middle of the night. And at 3 a.m., they call a code blue in the emergency room. You had to jump up and run down there, and my hair would be smashed to one side, you know, and the nurses would make fun of me. So I said, screw it, I'm going to have these short haircuts. And so... Because it's short and, you know, my barber just uses a clipper, I bought a pair of clippers. And when I look at myself in the morning, I'm thinking, I need a haircut. I don't have time to go. So, you know, I'll do it myself. Well, the sides tend to be okay that I can see, but the back, you know, it, you know, it, 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 it looks like somebody, you know, had a seizure, you know, with a riding mower. It's really bad. It's a disaster. It, it's a mess. And I, I just yesterday literally had my uh, the, the great guy who, who cut, cuts my hair. Um, Robert, Robert looked and he said, what the hell happened to your ass? So this was recent. You still do it? It was yesterday. I just, okay. yeah, of course I do. You know, yeah, I, you I, can't I, help yourself. Well, I learned from big mistakes. These little yeah. ones, oh, You well, keep doing. The, you know, what the heck. Um, well, you talk about being in um, med school or whatever. Was it ever like Grey's Anatomy where you would have affairs with people in linen closets and stuff? Was it ever like sexy and young and... Not with people in my class, although I, you know, was kind of coming out at the time. So I did bring some of my, um, you know, early, er, er, earlier paramours into the on-call room. I was hoping you'd use the word paramours. Well, I did. You didn't even tell me about that. But anyway, <laughs> into the on-call rooms. The walls were paper thin, and I just couldn't care less. I figured they're working me to death. They brought, I, they, you brought them into what? The on-call rooms? Well, the on-call room is where you would sleep. Um, oh, while you were in the hospital okay. on call, and you really never got to sleep. And it, no, it wasn't that private. There were bunk beds, but sometimes you know there was nobody in the upper bunk, and I would sneak these people in, and the walls were paper thin. But I just didn't care, and we'd have a good time. That's funny. Do they give you a hard time afterward, like your colleagues? I no. picture a ner- a sassy nurse being like, mm, afterwards, no, no, perhaps actually, played by Loretta Devine. No, maybe? okay, so no, <laughs> no. But what they did, you know, my my. The, the silliest thing, or not silliest thing. So at the time, I, I was a college athlete. I was, you know, you know, reasonably athletically built, and I had my Jufro, and I was always tan. So there was a rumor I'm going in. around. I'm in. I'm go, in. Well, there was a rumor going around my medical school that I was a light-skinned African American guy trying to pass as white. Like the Rachel Yucatel. Exactly. So they, the and, and I, I didn't, you know, I, you know, but so, so you know, I was just a nice Jewish boy from Northeast right. Philly. Anyway, well, the the rumor <laughs> permeates the hospital, and one night it was late at night, and I'm on call, and the. Um, the unit clerk, this very large African-American woman, Mrs. Washington, you know, and she was sort of the, the Tony Soprano of all the other unit clerks in the hospital who, you know, handled all the paperwork. She summons me. I said hi as I walked by, and she summons me over. And she says, hey, baby, I have a question. And I said, what's that? And she said, well, we all want to know something. I said, who's we all? And it was her girlfriends. And she said, what's your mix? And what she was asking me was, was I a light-skinned black man? Yeah. And so I never answered her question. I just leaned forward like the snarky kid I was, and I said, just the best parts. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, oh, you are so bad. And I just never, I never answered the question. That's crazy. (laughs) So I let them think that. What did I care? I thought it was a compliment. Yeah, come on. It's exciting. (laughs) I like it. A little mystery, a little intrigue. You've got everybody talking at the hospital. Oh, my goodness gracious. You know what? I'm thinking that that had never happened to me before in my life, but okay. Have you ever had a crush on a patient? Um... 
Not really, and that's and, and that's an interesting thing. People have asked me that. I've never fooled around with a patient, and um, I've you know thought to myself, "Wow, this would be a wonderful person to." date, but my head's in a different place. It's really interesting because, you know, people will ask me that question a lot. Don't you notice the beautiful people? Of course, you know, I'm a human being, but I don't really think about it that way. I'm there to take care of them. And they'll say, well, you get to see, you know, their private parts. And my response to that is, if I'm looking at their private parts, it usually isn't on their best day. So <laughs> the private parts aren't usually too happy on the days that I get to see them. So, so, right. that, so that's, that's, that's sort of the that's truth true. to that. They do have good days and bad days. They, they have sure good do. days and bad days. Yeah, I got um, you. But, but you're, you know, the serious answer to your question is, you know, uh, do doctors, you know, are we people? Yes, of course we are. Um, but... My role is to um, be there for a person unconditionally and not violate the trust and not violate the relationship they're looking for, which is somebody to take care of them and for them to be safe. And I would be, you know, sort of absolutely violating that safety if I was to cross that line. And I never have and I never will. But I bet it worked the other way. I bet some people are like, hey, Doc. And what I do is I just redirect that. I, I smile and I said, I'm very flattered. Thank you. But listen, I think we'll last a hell of a lot longer as doctor and patient than we will as, you know, dating for, you know, a few weeks or months. So I said, and you wouldn't be able to stay my patient if we were to date. Right. So, you know, the heck with that. And, you know, we can have an unrequited crush. How's that? Right, so, you know, again, what I don't want them to do is to feel embarrassed about it because, again, it's very human. Right. But, but there is a way to redirect that. I mean, you know, some people have gotten a little more aggressive and I have had to put their hand back where it should be. But, you know, um, again, I I just, you know, my job is to make them not feel embarrassed and to redirect their, their, their energies. What do you wear at work? You don't wear like a white coat or anything at work. No, specifically don't. That's an interesting thing to bring up. Um, In Great Britain, many years ago, they banned white coats, ties, and long sleeves. And if they get... Because when you go from patient to patient, you can transmit, you know, flesh-eating bacteria. And people, doctors don't wash their ties every day. Doctors don't wash their white coats but every yeah. two weeks or when they look dirty. And long sleeves, I can brush up against somebody and, you know, bring it to the next patient. So I tend to wear, you know, I dress up nicely. I tend to wear, you know... Bull slacks and a you know a, either, a polo or a, short a polo shirt. or either short sleeve or my sleeves rolled up you know yeah. um, uh, you know buttoned down um, you know and look very clean and professional but um, the white coat thing never appealed to me anyway I thought it was very off putting and very you know. It was just a I've seen a picture of you in a white coat. Well, that was in my that was during my residency, right. and okay. then they they sort of forced me to do that. Sure. And I, of course, I rebelled. But um, the the I haven't really worn one since. And again, you know, it's what people sometimes expect a doctor to look like. Right. On the other hand, it's just not really me. I'm I'm, I'm because of the infection control part of it, but also because I just don't, I don't see, I don't, well, I just don't see a need for the costume. That's I, right. I, you know, I, you know uh, we're, we're all just people trying to help each other. 
There you go. But you can rock a stethoscope. Oh, I got the stethoscope around the around my neck all day long. It's awesome. And some days I forget where it is. Is it is it around my neck? Is it on my desk? It's like it's like glasses these days. I have no idea where it is. Do you ever see the diva side of Hollywood? People that want their appointment now, or why can't you? Da, 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 da. All day long. But I have amazing staff. They've been with me for 15 plus years. And it's interesting. My staff knows how to handle that kind of stuff. And my practice is set up to accommodate behavior. And some of it that people would label diva. For example, I had a a gent who was directing a very popular series. And if he had to leave the studio that day that he got sick, he, when he was directing, he would have had to idle a set of 120 people. Right. And he said, can you come over at lunchtime and listen to my chest and maybe give me a shot and some antibiotics? Because he thought he had a bad bronchitis, which he did. He was sick. And so I figured, you know, brought my nurse. We got a drive on on the lot and did a set call. And, you know, he, you know, a lot of people didn't have to lose pay for that right. day or didn't get slowed down. There's there hundreds are, of thousand dollars at stake. Right. Now, there are times when it's just not appropriate. I'm right. like, I don't have the diagnostic capability to take care of that. You got to, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Right. And then some people, you know, will, will, will try to push, but you know, you just, again, you redirect to what's reasonable because a lot of people in this town are not used to hearing the word no, especially right. some of the higher ups. And um, the answer is, you know, in your world, that's fine. In my world, we have to work within certain circumscribed guidelines. And I also have to have time for you. I'm not going to basically squeeze you in at the same time I'm trying to see another patient and then not pay attention to anybody. Right. No, everyone loses. Okay, final question. What's the most satisfying part of what you do? Is there a moment after you've seen a patient, you walk out and you're like, wow, that was... I feel good. When do you feel the most gratified? I end every patient visit in my private office. So it starts out in the exam room and my nurse goes in, takes vital signs. And if we're doing some blood, we, we, we do the medical business in the exam room. But in my current practice, when, as soon as we're finished in the exam room, people sit down with me in my office with the door closed and we talk. And that's the most satisfying part of it because that's when, you know, we really kind of hash out not just treatment plans, but what's going on with their life. And for me to know what's happening with the rest of their life isn't really prurient interest. It's I can help them better if I know the stressors that are happening that are you know not related to some of their medical problems or may impact on their medical problems. And you, what happens is, interestingly, you become kind of, not kind of, you're, you become friends. And, uh, you know, I've taken care of some of these people for, you know, almost 25 years. And so these are people who I've known for a very long time. We kind of grew up together. You know, I laugh with them. I said, I tell some of them, that I said, you've lasted longer than any of my spouses, you know, in, in terms of relationship. And they come back and say, you too. And um, it's a nice relationship. So the most satisfying thing is the people. Yeah. You know, I, I sometimes anger my colleagues by saying, look, at the end of the day, once you're experienced, any well-trained chimpanzee can throw prescriptions at patients. That's not doctoring. Doctoring is when, you know, you're talking, you're connecting, and you're there for people. And that's what I find the most satisfying. Have you had patients win Oscars where you're watching the Oscars going, gosh, I hope my guy wins or gal? Yes. You don't have to name names, but like any show, I'm sure. Oscars, Golden Globes. I look at the red carpet and I'm like, you know, I know, (laughs) you know, I know, I know the support staff. I know all the publicists. You know, I'm thinking, and and again, it's still 
never fails to amaze me. What am I doing here? Right. You know, I'm just, you know, sort of this sort of, you know, kid from Northeast Philly. You know, what am I doing? But, you know, I guess somebody has to do Because you're good it. at what you do and they can trust you. <laughs> Thank you, and that's you know that's very nice, and I and I guess there must be some truth to that. But um, I just I just and after, after I've been here, my father laughs with me. My father's eighty one, and he's a very smart guy, and and he laughs if I will tell him a story, and you know he he calls it last man standing syndrome when I tell him like. How do I know all these people, you know, in front of the camera and behind the scenes? He said, you've been around too long. So, um, but part, part of that is actually true. I've just been in this town a long time. You've been, have you ever thought of living anywhere else? You ever thought of moving? Uh, yeah. I don't know where I'd live, though. So, okay. I like Southern California. Um, and so, uh, you know. And it's what, a pretty sweet setup up here, I have to say. Nice little view. Well, yeah. I was able to find a house back in the late 90s, paid just about nothing for it, redid it. And, you know, in Hollywood, up in the Hollywood Hills, and um, the God's honest truth is it's, you know, the Hollywood grew up around me and so uh, and got gentrified. So I wouldn't be able to afford the house that we're that I'm living in if I was to try to buy my own house today. Right. You, you couldn't know? buy your own house. No, today. no, no. My mortgage is less than most people's one bedroom apartment. So that's how I can live in this house. Yeah. Do you like how I say last question and it's never the last question? Because I always have more. But here's the other thing. When you're talking about getting, you know, talking about the patients in their lives, what I've learned this year more than any other years past is the connection between what's going on in your mind and your life and your stressors and how it manifests in the body. And I, I you know what I mean? Like things that have happened have come out in weird ways and stuff like that. Absolutely. Is there anything, is there anything sort of in the more holistic realm that you advocate for like meditation or I don't know any of that. Is there anything like that you've like, wow, I've really heard anecdotally or things like that. Is there anything in that world that you're intrigued by or... Not just intrigued by. Or have seen real... No, I'm just intrigued by. I, I do not want to write a prescription. Believe it or not, I don't want to throw medicines at people unless they absolutely need them. I've, I'm a bigger believer in millions of years of human evolution without all these drugs than the last 50 years of the pharmaceutical industry. And um, so most people's issues... Again, some are genetics or bad luck or whatever, but most people's issues are self-inflicted between not taking care of themselves, they're not eating right, they're smoking, they've allowed themselves to gain way too much weight, and then we're talking about diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, heart disease, you know, reflux, you know, etc. And a lot of these things could be taken care of by exercise, be it meditation, be it psychotherapy, um, you know, watching what you eat, uh, you know, and, and committing to these things, I may be living proof of that. Now, I have inherited, for example, my father's uh, blood pressure and cholesterol, but when I just most recently did a heart test on myself, there was zero plaque in my arteries, and I was shocked because I've been on this stuff for over a decade. But that's because I exercise every single day, and I'm about to have shoulder surgery in a couple of weeks um, from a, an ancient college athletic injury. But I'm just, you know, you got to fix up an aging carcass because things wear out. So I tell people that's urgent, and they go, "Really?" And I'll say, "Yep, yeah, anything that slows down your mobility and your ability to keep moving is going to age you faster and result in more medical problems. So fix it." I said, now, if it can be fixed by physical therapy and in conservative means, great. If it needs a surgical fix, just get it done and stop screwing around because you got to keep moving. Yeah. Have you ever delivered a baby? Yes. 
What's it like? Um, slippery. <laughs> okay, I think that's a good final question, right? Yeah, I was, I was in my, um, oh God, I, no, more medical student years, and um, I was at a hospital that was interesting. It was a combination, it was sitting in an area where on one side of the street were these super wealthy people in Philadelphia, and on the other side of the street was, you know, like the Bronx in the 70s, and they wouldn't let me deliver the wealthy pa- the wealthy patients. They had their private attendings, but the students and the residents would deliver the people without insurance. And so they sometimes would come in, and oftentimes they were teenagers. They didn't know they were pregnant. There was nobody to support them, and they hadn't gone to Lamaz classes. They, they literally didn't know they were pregnant. Well, sometimes didn't well, know. It's like that reality show, yeah. Yeah, and and you know you would you know try to coach them through it and say don't bear down, and the next thing you know you've got you know a baby hitting you in the chest as they squeeze it out too quickly, and and so we had these towels that were slightly they were. Had, they were like um, slightly textured towels so that the slippery baby was slimy and covered in whatever, you know, you wouldn't drop it. That was my big fear was dropping the kid. Right. Never did. Never dropped the kid. But never anyway, dropped a kid. Ne- never dropped the kid. But yeah, so when you say basically, you know, what I'm thinking about is slippery. <laughs> right. I love it. All right. Thank you so much for doing this. My it was pleasure. wonderful to talk to you. I think it's amazing what you do, and I can understand why you're so great at it. So well, thank you. I thank hope you, you someday write a book about being on the front lines. Of, have you ever thought about doing something like that? Yes. Awesome. I, 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 will, I, I, will, I will do that as soon as I stop procrastinating about it. It's all right. You got your hands full. Maybe when you're late, how long are you going to be laid up with your shoulder? Um, four weeks actually. Wow, so, so yeah. So anyway, I'll 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 get some 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 of this stuff but done. You just but... binge watch from Netflix. Yeah, that's a good yeah. idea. All right, thanks. Oh, and follow Gary's blog, which is Dr. Gary Cohan's Medical Soapbox on Facebook. Yay! All right, bye. Thanks again to Dr. Gary Cohan for being on the podcast. Make sure you check out his Facebook blog, Dr. Gary Cohan's Medical Soapbox. He's always posting interesting, provocative mm, kind of articles where you're like, oh, I didn't know that about coffee or this and that. So definitely subscribe to that. It's really great. All right. So this happened. As you may remember from the last episode, I was in Palm Springs for the Thanksgiving weekend. I was supposed to come back on Sunday, and I decided to just come back really early on Monday so I could stay and go to uh, a drag show at Two Cans in Palm Springs with my friends, and um, it did not disappoint. Let me just say, all of the the queens were like RuPaul Drag Race veterans. We had um, Raja, we had Pandora Box, we had uh, Morgan McMichaels, we had Mariah something, Belafonte, Balenciaga, I don't know, there were three names, uh, Delta Work, anyway... Just an all-star cast. And I have to say, I think my favorite moment was when Morgan McMichaels did a Samantha Fox medley, did a couple of her tunes, and really brought out the acid wash, and maybe um, straddled me, maybe straddled my friend Brett, brought it, left it, served it. And uh, that was a great cap to a very fun weekend. So if you're ever in Palm Springs on a Sunday... Check out the drag show at Two Cans. It will not disappoint. All right. Um, That's it. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye.